Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, and thank you for sending him to us. And we thank you that he was willing to come, and that in love he came, and he came in grace, and he came to redeem us. We, uh, we thank you that in his departure from this world, uh, you and, and, and he sent the Spirit to us to live with us always. We pray that your spirit now would be present in our midst. You'd be, you'd be stirring our hearts to affection, to see Jesus, to, to, to understand him. For in, in seeing him and understanding him, we, we know who you are. And we know the love that you have for us. And so I pray, Father, that you would give us great comfort, great joy in being known and in knowing you. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This is now the uh, third of, of three sermons that we are dedicating to the new mission, vision, and values here at First Presbyterian Church. The mission, vision, and values have been printed on an insert this morning, and, and the previous two sermons uh, can be found in the sermon archive on our website. And the focus of this third sermon in the series is that last statement in the vision section, that we will cultivate our presence in the city. But before we begin, just a couple of, of clarifying statements. The first is that when we say our, cultivating our presence in the city, we mean the church, First Presbyterian Church. Of course, the church is made up of a collection of individuals whom we'd love to see engaged in the life of the city. But what this vision is stating is our desire for First Presbyterian Church to be known in this city for the ways in which we embody the love of Jesus. Are people grateful that this church exists in this city? Do they even know we exist? And if we cease to exist, would the city even feel our absence? These are the sorts of questions that were posed throughout the process that ultimately led to this goal within our vision statement, to cultivate our presence in the city. And the second clarifying statement I want to offer up front is that by limiting our vision to the city, we're not neglecting our support of ministries outside of our city. We'll continue to support national ministries like the Wades working with refugees in Dallas and also international ministries like the Wheatons in Macedonia. But this city is where we can exert the greatest influence and this city is where God has placed us in our time of exile. Our desire is that the entire world would come to know Jesus Christ as their master and redeemer and that, every, and that every city will be transformed to mirror his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. But the question is, how do you eat an elephant, right? How do you accomplish such an enormous task? How do you eat an elephant? And the answer is one bite at a time. And the one bite that God has given us is the city of Siloam Springs in, in the larger region of northwest Arkansas. And mixing metaphors, this city is ground zero for us. And we hope that the kingdom spreads from here. But you have to start somewhere. And so, over the course of the next five years, we will cultivate our presence in the city of Siloam Springs. And one of the passages of Scripture that have inspired this vision is Jeremiah 29. 
This is by no means the only scriptural support for this vision statement. I could have turned to a, a number of places in the Bible in order to support this vision statement, or the idea of, of presence, that was the topic of last week's sermon, or the mission statement with its concept of participating with God in the transformation of all things. The passages I have of scripture that I've chosen over the course of this sermon series, I've chosen because they seem, at least to me, to represent the spirit of each of these statements best. Jeremiah 29 is no exception. Jeremiah 29 articulates the obligations and responsibilities that the church inherits by simply existing, by simply being present in the city. The context of Jeremiah 29 is exile. The Babylonians, who were a merciless people, had laid siege to the city of Jerusalem for many months until that great city became indefensible, at which point the Babylonians stole away all the elites and influential people in order to indoctrinate them in Babylon and ultimately turn them into good Babylonians. It was a subversive way of eliminating a people in contrast to the more proactive way of the sword. They would convert the elites and leave the laborers to keep things running smoothly back home. So what you had were some people left in Jerusalem and some people taken to Babylon. And apparently the prophet Jeremiah was one of those people who was left in Jerusalem. And Jeremiah 29 contains the contents of a letter that the prophet Jeremiah wrote to these exiles living in the foreign land of Babylon from Jerusalem. Remaining true to form, what Jeremiah had to say to these men and women living in exile was surprising and unexpected. Jeremiah tells the exiles living against their will in the hostile and inhospitable land of Babylon to build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now there are three things about Jeremiah's advice that I, I want to point out, and each one is scandalous in its own right when you remember that the people to whom Jeremiah writes are living in Babylon. Babylon was the epitome of evil in the minds of the Jewish people. In fact, Babylon became a sort of code word for anything considered unholy. The fact that Jeremiah provides this advice for people living in that place is remarkable. And it's worthy of our reflection. There are three things that stand out in his message. The first is the way in which God claims responsibility for their situation, unpleasant as it is. Twice, in verse 4 and in verse 7, God tells the people through Jeremiah that I have sent you into exile. I have sent you into Babylon. Why does he do this? He does this so that his people can keep the identity of their true enemy straight in their minds. It would be natural for them to blame all their troubles on Babylon. If Babylon hadn't 
ever ransacked our city in their nation-building greed, then we would still be living in the comfort of our homes and drinking the wine of our own vineyards. But God eliminates that entire line of thought when he reminds his people that Babylon was his instrument to punish them for their disobedience. If you're going to seek a cause for this tragic situation, then look no further than your own hearts. You're in exile because of your sin and your idolatry. Don't blame the Babylonians and don't even really blame God for you brought this tragedy upon yourself. You have only yourself to blame. Jeremiah spent his entire ministry before the exile calling this people to repent. And they disregarded him and his message. And now that they were in exile, God's reminding them why. It's because of your sin. And it's, I sent you to Babylon. The Babylonians are merely the instrument of my choosing. And doing this, and in, in reminding this people of the identity of their true enemy, God is softening their attitude towards the people and the place where they find themselves. If the enemy is within as opposed to without, then there's no justification for an us versus them posture. There's no fuel to feed their hatred and self-righteousness. Instead, God creates room for love to grow and for this exiled people to think humbly of themselves when interacting with a hostile people. Jeremiah then presses this relationship between exile and city even farther with the, the other things worthy of our reflection in his message to the Babylonian exiles. And the second thing that's worthy of our reflection that Jeremiah tells the exiles is an echo of Genesis 1, to be fruitful and multiply. In other words, what Jeremiah is telling these people is that in this land of Babylon, they should not just seek to survive this experience, but seek to thrive in the midst of it. Don't just sit around grieving the world in which God has placed you. Don't be frozen on account of your fear or disgust, but get to work. Grow in number and in strength. By echoing Genesis 1 with his command to multiply and his allusions to fruit-bearing gardens, God, through Jeremiah, is reiterating that the original call given to humanity is still intact despite being transferred to a new environment. In Genesis 1, God placed humanity inside a garden and he told the man and the woman he created as representatives of all of humanity to be fruitful and multiply. Adam and Eve were to tend the garden, expand its borders into all the world until the whole earth was covered with the glory of God. With every plant, animal, and human being giving thanks to God, our creator and sustainer. But in true fashion, we scorned that charge and neglected our responsibility, preferring instead to try to rise above our position and station in life. Preferring rebellion to obedience, we try to become gods when we'll never be anything more than creatures created by God to give him glory. And so we were tossed out of the garden to live out our days in exile in an inhospitable and hostile world. Our environment changed, but the call remained the same. We were still expected to be fruitful and multiply. Only the task now would be more difficult 
And by echoing Genesis 1, Jeremiah is telling the exiles in Babylon that it's same song, different verse. You've been cast out of the land, but the call remains the same. The calling as God's people is always the same regardless of the environment or context. Be fruitful and multiply. Have children and raise them up in the knowledge and love of God. Build homes, care for the earth and for the animals put in your charge. As he says in verse 6, multiply and do not decrease. Which brings us to our third observation from Jeremiah's letter to the exiles. God is interested in the expansion of the church living in exile. He's interested in more and more people coming to know him, to love him, to confess him as master and redeemer. But he is not interested in the formation of a Christian ghetto outside of and separate from the city into which he has sent them. In fact, he says through Jeremiah that the church should seek to grow by going into the city and seeking its welfare. For in the city's welfare, the church will find its own welfare. Don't withdraw, don't decline, but grow by going and committing yourself in love to the welfare of the city. Go and turn Babylon into Eden. Asylum Springs is no Babylon, but it's also no Eden. There's still work to be done by our church here in this city. But then that raises a question for us to consider, doesn't it? Is Jeremiah's letter to the exiles living in Babylon really applicable to us living here in Asylum Springs, Arkansas? Tim Keller poses and answers this very question when he writes, is there any reason to believe that the model for Israel in Babylon should serve as the model for the church? Yes, he answers. In exile, Israel no longer existed in the form of a nation state with its own government and laws. Instead, it existed as an international community and counterculture within other nations, which is precisely the position in which the church finds itself. And Keller points us to the New Testament passage that was read for you this morning for support of this position. In 1 Peter 2, Peter addresses Christians living in this world as sojourners and exiles. Peter is saying that Christians living in this world live here as exiles. And it's not just him. James says the same thing by addressing his letter to those living in the dispersion, to the scattered people. There are exiles in the world. But our solution to exile is not a rejection, not a withdrawal, not a departure from this world, but the transformation of it. In the portion of this letter read for you earlier, Peter clarifies our calling as exiles in this world in a reiteration of Jeremiah's advice to the exiles living in Babylon. Beginning in verse 13, Peter calls us to live in this world as good citizens, subject even to the emperor as to one who has been given his position by God. In verse 16, Peter reminds us that God has set us free so that he alone is our authority, but that our freedom in Christ is no excuse for defiance of civil authorities and matters that do not compromise our obedience to God. 
We demonstrate our freedom in Christ by honoring the civil authorities that God in his sovereignty put into place over us. We're never outside the reach of our God, even when we find ourselves from time to time under a president, a congress, or under courts with whom we disagree in substantive ways. We're called to be good citizens. But we're also called to be distinct in this world. Peter lists out in verse 9 the identity of the church in the midst of this broken world. You are a chosen race, a, whole, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. The church is marked off as a distinct race, a distinct nation even, living in the midst of the many nations and races of this world. The church is a, a new community that's defined not by the color of our skin or the language we speak or the flag representing our nation, but our identity in Christ. Our commonality is our chosenness. Our commonality is Christ. He has made us unique. He binds together the many as one, so that wherever we are and in whatever language we speak, our calling in this world is the same. We are to work to make Christ known, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, as our calling is described for us in verse 9. And it's significant that Peter should use the image of priesthood in his description of the church, for in the image of the priest, the call to transform the world we are living in finds expression. We belong to the world. We're citizens of nations and members of the human race on earth, and yet we occupy an interesting place where we live like priests among the nations and among our neighbors. And to live like a priest is to go before God on behalf of the people and to pray for the city and to advocate for the world, not that it would be condemned, but that it would be transformed by the grace and truth of Jesus Christ. That's what priests did. They belonged to the people, and yet they were distinct in their role as advocates on behalf of the people, offering up prayers and sacrifices on their behalf. Well, Peter is saying that you all are priests now. Priests on behalf of the city where God has placed us. We are therefore called to be distinct and yet to seek the good of this city. Peter himself sums it up nicely in verse 17, the last verse quoted for you in the passage printed in your bulletin. Fear God, honor the emperor. It's a difficult balance. And making it more difficult are the expected outcomes that Peter describes. When living as distinct servants of Christ in this world, we should expect to suffer, Peter says, to be misunderstood, to be ostracized, canceled, despised. Later in his letter, Peter writes, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Don't be surprised. Rather, expect that if you're living according to the teachings of, of historic Orthodox Christianity, that you will suffer in this world, particularly in this country where everything is politically charged and Christianity does not fit neatly into either political camp. The four social distinctives of the church since its inception have been a concern for the poor and marginalized in society, a fundamental commitment to work towards racial justice and equality, a sexual ethic in which sex is exclusively reserved for a relationship between one man and one woman within the context of marriage, 
and being pro-life. These four things have characterized Christianity from its inception, yet two are claimed by the Democrats and two are claimed by the Republicans. If you are faithful to these four things, then you're going to get criticized and discounted and be the recipient of suspicion from both sides of the aisle, Democrats and Republican. If you're not, in other words, if you live for Christ faithfully, there's no avoiding the pain of ostracization. However, Peter tells us, it won't all be suffering. Keep your conduct in this world pure, he writes. And there will be some, even those who have considered you evil on account of your Christianity, who will see your good deeds and they will glorify God because of you. In other words, there will be movement from opposition and suspicion to gratefulness and even repentance and conversion so that the church will grow in the midst of this world. This is why we must not withdraw into ourselves, because the potential for salvation and redemption remains. The Holy Spirit is working in the streets, homes, and hearts of our city. We must not withdraw. God is calling us to go to be present, to get involved in every aspect of the life of this city. The potential for, con for conversion is also why we as Christians must take stands only for those things that are central and distinctive to Christianity so that there's clarity about what Christians believe and value at a time when there's great confusion about what Christians believe. And if we take stands on peripheral or partisan matters in the name of Christ or Christian freedom, then there's the potential for people being drawn or repulsed by Christianity for something that's not, that's not central to it. If people are to come to Christ on account of the public stands we take, then let it be for Christ alone that they come, not for some personal preference on a peripheral point. And if we are to be rejected and suffer, then let it be for Christ alone and not because we have failed to love what he loves or care what he cares about. The potential for transformation in our city is alive and real because Jesus is alive and real. But we will never transform this world unless we love it with the love that Jesus has shown us in the gospel. In verse 10, Peter describes that love for us when he explains that once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. There was a change in you, a transformation, and you had nothing to do with it. The transformation, the movement from darkness to light, the movement from wrath to mercy, is something that has been done for you. You receive it as a gift. Not because you deserve mercy or because there is no darkness in you, but simply because God loves you with a pure, unconditional love that is truly transformative in its effect. And if we want to see Siloam Springs transformed, then we have to love it the same exact way. The same kind of pure, unconditional love that looks beyond what we see on the surface. G.K. Chesterton, in his book, Orthodoxy, writes about what is required for a city to truly change. In his example, he speaks about Pimlico, which is, which is now an upscale residential area within London. But it was at the time that Chesterton was writing a sketchy, dumpy part of the city. 
And you can hear his opinion of the place in, in his opening line. He writes this, Let us suppose we are confronted with a desperate thing, say Pimlico. It's not enough for a man to disapprove of Pimlico. In that case, he will merely cut his throat or move to Chelsea. Nor certainly is it enough for a man to approve of Pimlico, for then it will remain Pimlico, which would be awful. The only way out of it seems to be for somebody to love Pimlico, to love it with a transcendental tie and without any earthly reason. If there arose a man who loved Pimlico, then Pimlico would rise into ivory tower and golden pinnacles. If men loved Pimlico as mothers love children, arbitrarily, because it is theirs, Pimlico, in a year or two, might be fairer than Florence. Uh, some readers will say that this is a mere fantasy. I answer that this is the actual history of humankind. This, as a fact, is how cities did grow great. Men did not love Rome because she was great. She was great because they had loved her. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying a place like Siloam Springs, which is no Pimlico, Pimlico based on Chesterton's disgust with that place, a place like Siloam Springs will only change if we love it like a mother loves her children, arbitrarily, because the child is hers. And I'm saying that's precisely how God feels about you. He loves you just because you are his, just because he decided to. And in his love for you, we have a template for how this city in which we live will be transformed and become great. You know, if we love Salem Springs because it's got it, whatever it is, then we're using the city, not loving it. If we love it because it's a great place to raise our kids, then we'll never transform this place. If we love it because it's full of people like us, then we'll be blind to the quarter of our population that look nothing like us, and this place will never resemble the kingdom of God. But if we invest in this place by being fully present here, building houses, planting gardens, raising families, loving it with the love of Christ, seeking its welfare arbitrarily, then truly we will get a glimpse of God and his kingdom in our midst. Then, then we will be participating with him in the transformation of our city, and the world will look on and praise our God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.